extreme wealth combined with narcissistic craziness, we may see Elon Musk and Zuck in the octagon. I, that's not going to happen. Okay, who wants to place a bet on that? I, I'm betting that does not happen. <laughs> so here's the thing. I'm thinking either one of those guys right now, I'm just like, you can go away. I don't want them to die, but do it to the death. No matter the outcome, we're all better off. <laughs> Completely. It's a, it's a win-win all around. You can't lose on this. Welcome to Transpose, a podcast about understanding the rapid shifts in technology, business, and society. We explore key changes in what's new, what it all means, and where we're going. I'm Maximus, your AI-generated disembodied voice, here to introduce your favorite collection of innovators, futurists, and ne'er-do-wells, Anju Ahuja, Justin Dav, and Sean Layden. Let's get started. Carry on, you overpaid jackasses. So what, what topics shall we tackle today, kids? <laughs> okay. Yeah, let me start by saying this topic is one that I have all kinds of opinions about, and it's one where I'm heavily restricted. So my comments are going to be um, tightly bound. But I think this is a really cool topic because we all come at this from different angles, and we're all power consumers of media. So I'm, I'm super interested to see where we go with this, especially with the 10-year-out frame. To give it a little um, context, right, what topic we're talking about is that streaming has changed the economics of the entertainment industry. Um, and it continues to change the economics of the entertainment industry. And I guess today we want to talk about what that might look like going forward. Because right now, I think the technical term <laughs> is shit show. Yes. It's a shit show. And there's been this massive delusion that... Um, you can grow out of any problem. As long as we keep growing, we'll be fine. And then yeah. someone said, hey, did you notice that like population is finite? What do you mean? They're not making more people? <laughs> well, not making enough people fast enough. And the, the entertainment dollar, the pool of entertainment dollars uh, right. that, that the public is swimming in, <laughs> it's also finite. Right. And it's, we, we've seen this before. What did they say back in the 1920s? There were like 40 different automobile manufacturers in America. And in the 1950s and 60s, there were probably two dozen TV manufacturers in America. And then everyone explodes. It all goes in every direction. Everyone tries to grab a piece of the money tree. And then it starts to collapse on itself. Sort of like a submersible in the bottom of the uh, Atlantic Ocean. It's this implosion of activity um, where only, only the strong will survive. And those will be numbers no larger than four or five. You know, just stepping back, if you look at the economics of the entertainment industry, so let's think about movies, TV, film, it really does not make sense, the proportions. So the amount of money that's spent on distribution, no. middle management, a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with content creation or engagement with your audience, no other industry would be designed this way. So it really needs a massive overhaul. It's like that book, Movies and Money, that was written like 30 years ago by... I forget who. I think his name is David something. Um, the industry hasn't changed in 50, 60 years. You know, we've seen recently the app mentality creep in, right? So, oh, we just, we just have to keep getting monthly average users. Well, okay, but to keep those monthly average users and the, what you've created, you have to keep giving them new content. And, you know, there's no efficient way to go deep dive into the back catalog on any of these. You know, the discovery... Yeah. Um, Algorithms are not great. And the, you know, especially if you have your children watching on the same account, 
<laughs> which I do, unless they're going to merge um, Never Have I Ever with really hardcore action movies, I don't think the algorithm is going to work for me. How many streaming sites do you think will be left at the end? Like, what's is, do you think the magic number is like every under, other industry and it's like three or four major players? Or do you think because of how crazy this industry is in terms of its organization, its cost structure, and its value chain, that the number is more like bloated out to eight, ten, one? The tricky part is, can we even assign a number to the question, how many streaming services are there today? Fair point. That number could could be 50, <laughs> as far as I know, because there's, there's a streaming service yeah. for everybody. There's just one narrow one for like food programming, right? You could just watch food shows all the time. So, so, so we, we had no problem supporting, you know, 100 cable networks, you know, various success. <laughs> and um, you can keep your mouth quiet on this one, Andrew, if it's if something you can't talk about. I've just been always surprised that everyone's not going direct, right? And it's getting there. But why isn't Universal just have their streaming service and Warner Brothers has their streaming service like it's a channel? I personally think Web3 is going to be a significant enabler. And I guess I would say I think it's a significant enabler if people actually know how to work with it. And this is going to be a, a touchy comment for some. I really feel like the media industry has been led by the same personality types and same skill sets for the last 30 to 40 years. And they're not only not producing content oh, for, for themselves, sure. they don't understand tech. It's a big problem. Like maybe you have like half of Netflix that actually gets technology, but you know, you talk about Web3 to somebody at a large studio that I will not name, and they, they have no idea what blockchain is. Help me out here. Why will that solve any of these problems that they're really facing, which is the cost to develop content, basically, versus the revenue they can generate on that content? So from a revenue standpoint, I do think distribution can be more efficient if you take a lot of the middle players out. And I do think that blockchain can help with, you know, giving, first of all, rights management, and access, right, to content. I also think that liberates us from looking for these big tentpole films that, frankly, are kind of disappointing and going to more of this artisanal content. I'll say that. I agree with that need, but I'm not sure that blockchain solves that, right? So someone still has to fund these movies being created to, in the first place. Right now, the industries run as a private equity model, That's not correct. a venture capital model, right? They are they're coming in and looking at a franchise saying, I can get X amount of dollars more out of this franchise if I you know, put in X million today uh, versus I'm going to fund 10 wild hair film concepts and two of them are going to flame out. Three are going to lose a little. Three will break even. And one of them is going to give us you know, 20x returns, which I think we'd have a lot more interesting content that way. I, it happened in the music industry. Right. Record sales were going down well before um, we had issues with peer-to-peer -peer because they were doing the same thing. They were looking to hit home runs versus funding a lot of interesting stuff to see what sticks. So where do you put user-generated content in that mix? Assuming it wasn't expensive to reach an audience because you did have, you had a Web3 world. What's a Web3 world for you? Decentralization, you know, lots of distributed components of technology. So you don't necessarily need to have a typical studio production line. Rights management becomes assigned by blockchains. So it's, it's a bunch of new tools, like the next generation of the internet that I think could be deployed to at least liberate parts of the content industry. It's not going to be for everything. 
But that's that's sort of how I think about it, that it's, it's a paradigm shift in the tools that are available and what you can actually do, which should result in a paradigm shift in business models around content. But I think that's where the process is kind of breaking down. There aren't people that have the capital and understand the technology and do content and have the reputations that they know how to do content. There's sort of like this, there's not a very big space in the overlap of that Venn diagram, if it even exists at all, the overlap. Am I too bearish? The biggest UGC platforms are TikTok and YouTube. Yes. Well, Instagram too, pretty pretty significant at this point. I mean, that's all UGC. But a lot of that is short form. I love it short form. Um, I notice a lot of the long form stuff doesn't get the necessary pickup that people think it will. You know, you hear people That's go, true. oh, I almost said video. <laughs> oh, man, it's like yeah. three minutes. Fuck that. <laughs> I don't have, show it to me in 27 seconds, and then I'll move on to the next thing. But I can't watch a three-minute video. But I also feel like the problem, and this could just be me, the problem with short form is it's really hard to get deep engagement. You can have repetition and frequency of viewing that same short form video, but it's hard to get deeply involved. And if you're not deeply involved, how much would you really pay for something? To the user, it's free, it's free. right? But you realize that it's an engine for driving commerce on the back end, right? So the entire billboard top yeah. 40 is driven by TikTok now. I mean, like you have something on TikTok, you know, you are on Absolutely. the quote unquote traditional charts, unquestionably. Um, the amount of time people are spending on TikTok eclipses streaming services by 10x. And the short form is the feature, not the bug. So the other area where I feel like technology could be a really great change agent for the industry, and I say that and like I'm super optimistic about it. You know, you've seen generations of types of media formats go through these evolutions, and people have been indicating demand for more immersive content. And I think I, I told you guys about this either in Slack or maybe it's in like the doc that we're sharing, that you know, we've gone from food we're just tasting and eating and then pairing with wine to immersive food theater experiences to these avant-garde sort of like Alinea type things to paying a premium to sit in the kitchen in the center of the action, right? And talking to the people that are actually making your food. We've seen Sleep No More, which was a completely, it's not the first time it's been done, but it's a nonlinear way of immersing the audience in the set through the production, which by the way, was actually kind of fun. If you've never done it in New York, it was a good time. And I think it's only in New York. And then even within journalism, we had Snowfall, right, that took print media and then said, you know what, we're going to tell the story about the, I think it was the Tunnel Creek avalanche. Uh, we're going to do it using video and infographics and moving charts and really help people understand what we're talking about, what makes an avalanche and, you know, what are the recovery stories. This has been going on now for three, four decades, like the things that have led to this state of pent up demand for immersion, people are paying to be immersed in silence and darkness in sleep chambers. We really need to figure out how to tap immersive media mechanisms like extended reality, like light fields. And we need to think about how we would tell the story differently with those kinds of tools. So I, I do feel like the demand is there. We're very focused on the headset is problematic. You know, that's that's the main conversation. But I think the main conversation needs to be, if you're a creator, what are all the cool things you can do with this? And, and Sean, this sort of makes me think, in the gaming industry, was there a moment where someone said, oh, now that I've got this technology, I'm going to do games completely differently? Well, certainly with with VR, you have to design your games differently. Um, you know, that's yeah, one of the Fallout was amazing in VR. Keep One going. of the trickiest things with, with game design came when we went from 2D to 3D. And when you got to a three-dimensional world, you know, everything becomes possible. And so we thought the great thing to do in gaming is to give people choice. We'll put you yep. on this island, 
you go choose your own adventure and do your no. own thing. Most people didn't like that. Most people thought, <laughs> I'm on this island. What am I supposed to do? You know, do I collect coins? Do I kill yeah. vampires? You know, do I eat, you know, this animal here? So we had to, you know, get further into developing the invisible hand. The invisible hand, which puts you in a 3D environment. It makes you think you're making these choices for yourself, but it's actually guiding you through the experience using different hints. You know, light goes off here, a sound cue goes off there. You see someone running past you down an alleyway, so you follow them. <laughs> Something I would not do in my uh, real life. No, but in, but in, your, but yeah. in your real life, you wouldn't you wouldn't have a shotgun either. Oh, so. says you. No, I don't have a, I don't have a shotgun. <laughs> so, in real life. So in VR, they had to relearn those skills again to get people to you know turn and look at things um, that we're putting out in the environment. And this is when we were talking with some showrunners from Hollywood who came down to see our VR exhibition in 2015, put them in the experience. You know, the guys from Battlestar Galactica, the guys from Breaking Bad, the guys from Walking Dead, they were all there to see it. And mm -hmm. they all were stunned by it and what this means to change linear um, content and exclaimed, you know, how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make people go where we want them to go? Because as a, TV, as a film director, you have the tyranny of the camera. You can point at this thing, point at that thing, make them look at this, make them look at that. But I was talking to this, the showrunner and I said, you know, this is where our gaming experience right. dovetails into your linear world going forward. Bring game designers into your world of creating VR experience, and they will help you with these hidden cues, the invisible hand. So people feel they're completely immersed in the experience, but yet we're pulling them along a spline where right. the action is, where the story happens, where interesting things right. occur. And we did that in gaming. They're having to start doing this now and doing you know linear for VR. Um, it does change the experience entirely. One thing that it changes in gaming, it makes horror games really horrible, horrible in a good way, like like scares the living bejesus out of you, because you're in this you're you're in this enclosed thing, and the jump scares <laughs> yeah. feel like they are literally in your face. Oh no, it's scary. So it's, um, horror no works well with that. Um, racing games work well with that. In, in the VR experience, because you can actually look around the cockpit and see where you're going. Uh, but for long-form narratives, I think we have to learn some more skills about how to keep people engaged and feel that they can suspend disbelief and be right into that experience. And we're still waiting for that. But yeah, Sean, bring us back to, to content, because Justin wants to talk about it. I want to talk about it. Let's talk about the industry. Okay, well, let's talk about the fact that, um, you know, during the pandemic, we saw this huge rise in not only the amount of content out uh, available to users around, but the number of services providing that content. There was a time, you know, not so long ago, where you either had Netflix or maybe HBO or Showtime or some other services that had uh, streaming content, and now it's just exploded, right? Disney has their own, so that's yeah. all off of Netflix. You know, we used to love putting kids in front of Netflix. They could just watch all the old Disney cartoons, which are no longer there. So you have to get the Disney yep. Plus. Apple Plus mm -hmm. has their own service, original content and licensed content. Amazon Prime came in with probably the most robust business model because they can take investments from the entire Amazon empire. And that thing blew up over the pandemic because we're all trapped at home. Now that the pandemic has come to stasis of some kind, we're seeing a collapse now of the revenues through um, broadcast TV and cable TV coming down. The services have realized now they just can't grow themselves into profitability, but now they have to cut costs. And that's why one of the topics we're going to talk about today is the disappearing of content across streaming services, where we thought we'd get 
a subscription, we'd have access to this content forever. Yeah. But forever has a limit to it, strangely enough. <laughs> is that why that surfer guy from Cincinnati is now no longer findable? What was it, John from Cincinnati or some show about guy from Cincinnati who becomes a surfer? It's like disappeared from the HBO catalog. Is that really what's going on? They're disappearing yes, the content? absolutely. Let's talk about specific providers. Well, you guys can. I can't. So fill me in. What, what's, what's the motivation? Scarcity? The first that was on my radar was when Disney took a billion half dollar tax write-off for disappearing a number of shows. They're not on the service anymore. And it's questionable whether those creators get that IP back. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I didn't actually understand this in, in what you guys were saying as a prelude to today's show. That is interesting. Wait, so do the creators, do they get to take a write-off too? Probably not. It's not their asset anymore. So the way that the residuals work... Buzzword of the week. Residuals, residuals yes. Buzzword of the week. So the way that residuals work for most people in you know, the creation side is the first airing of this thing, you don't get anything, right? You were paid to create it. You, you know, the first time it, it launches, you've, you've been paid. Right. It's the subsequent lifespan of these creations. I know that like the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, um, Disney sends mm -hmm. a check to the WGA with the writer's name on it. The WJ pulls off 1.5%, sends the, the balance to the, to the writer. By the way, I think that setup makes no sense, but let's keep going. Well, look at the television, right? Back in, the, yeah. back in the 60s when it became big in the 70s, um, you would take content, be first-run TV shows, and if you got enough seasons in, you could syndicate it, yep. which meant running reruns. Yep. And now the reruns would have a residual payment attached to it, to the talent and to the, to the writers. But it was kind of, if not zero sum, at least you had revenue coming in from selling advertising against reruns of the Munsters, and then you yep. could pay money out to the people who are in that. With the streaming services, though, of course, where most of them, the very nature of subscribing to it is I don't want to see advertising, the only revenue stream they have is the, right. that, the monthly subscription fee. And that's a smaller pot than selling a bunch of advertising against the Munsters. And then if you watch the Munsters uh, and it was watched, then that money would go out to the people who did it. On the streaming service, it's a bit more, you don't really know what's pulling people in. I mean, you know, people came into HBO because they wanted to see Game of Thrones, fair enough. And that would pull a lot of action right. in. But how do you calculate those residuals? It's much easier with TV syndication because you can actually count how many times it was yeah. shown in Milwaukee or whatever. Um, on the streaming service, it's a bit more opaque. It's more black box. It's like Spotify. You know, how many times has someone listened to my song? Yeah. So um, I think the streaming services have found that if this program is not pulling in viewers, if we can't show that it's pulling in people into the service, it's just a liability now. I have licensing fees associated with it if I didn't make it myself. And if I did make it myself, I've got artist residuals and other things I have to consider. And just to hold it on my service has a cost associated with it. So what they're doing with some of that is you're licensing it out to these up-and-coming you know, ad-supported television, which sounds like right. television. But now they, <laughs> but they have services where they can license this stuff out to and get picked up. But if it can't mm -hmm. get picked yeah. up on Tubi or Pluto TV or Sling or Roku or those kind of places, then this stuff disappears essentially. And so one of the angles on this is we have original content that was created by a streaming service for the streaming service. If it goes away, typically that never had a DVD release or a Blu-ray release. Right, right. Or it's not in the no Amazon store because right. it was on a different streaming service to begin with. And there's definitely no merch. Does it just disappear? Yeah, and that's not, uh, that's not only a streaming problem, right? So I have a 
an acquaintance, some a friend of my older siblings who was the uh, executive producer of Roseanne. And <laughs> we all watched a few years ago when Roseanne said really racist things about Valerie Jarrett. All of the reruns were pulled off of Hulu and, you know, all these other services. Uh, it cost him right. literally millions of dollars. The value of his work was suddenly zero. Now, no, the interesting statistic around this, which may be just a correlation and not a causation, is over the last three or four years, there's been an increase in piracy online. Not just, you know, peer-to-peer, -peer, like BitTorrent type of things, but going to actual sort of illegal streaming sites. Russian streaming sites. I think they're all on, <laughs> all coming out of, right. you know, far eastern Europe and Russia. And so someone asks the, you know, the philosophical question, if my program, which was on an original streaming service, is no longer available anywhere, and I can't buy the DVD and I can't buy the Blu-ray, is it bad for me to pirate this from a Russian site to watch it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. who's being harmed? Because... It's not like a sale didn't happen because it's not on sale. I, I see Andrew biting her tongue over there. She can't really talk about that. No, she can't talk about uh, that. No, piracy Piracy is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, it's I. there was a time when I would buy a fake handbag in New York, right, in Chinatown. There was a time. And then one day I actually literally grew up and realized, holy crap, a lot of people spend a lot of money in the fashion industry making these products and I'm buying a knockoff and I'm cheating somebody else out of their piece of the pie. But the problem that you're raising is, well, they're not going to get paid on this content anyway. So how big of a deal is it if an audience wants to access something that they know is already out there, they're aware of it, they're not necessarily, they're searching for something that's nostalgic or that's a, that's a real conundrum. But yeah, in general, I think the the problem with piracy is also you don't understand the risk of exposure when, you know, most people that are being targeted with like those max boxes or whatever it's called, like door to door, they're targeting certain diasporas, ethnic diasporas, elderly people, getting them to buy these like knockoff set top boxes preloaded with content that's all illegal, comes with a bunch of malware. Mm -hmm. Oh, the yeah, flex, flex boxes, basically. Yeah. There's a bunch of them. I can't remember the brands and I probably should. Well, actually, I shouldn't because I don't want to even suggest it um, to anyone. Yeah. Stay away. It's for your own safety. Right. Yes, you know, fake handbag won't kill you. But, you know, this it's definitely a security issue. But but the broader point is, yeah, if you're going to disappear the content, somehow you got to do that the whole way down the chain. And that probably means disabusing your audience of the fact that it ever existed. And that is How impossible. Orwellian. Or like eternal sunshine of the spotless... <laughs> mind veering off on your path of knockoff bags the other reason not to buy knockoff bags is they're probably made by people who are functionally enslaved right in sweatshops somewhere that's a public service announcement for the day oh yeah that's also true that was a big thing that was yes knock off everything's like there's there's a really horrible value chain behind it where nobody is treated well you are contributing to a secret society of doom well that's it i'm not <laughs> buying handbags anymore I'm going to boycott handbags. All right. So, so in content, can we talk about the news industry? Bring it on. It's like one of my passion areas. Yeah, go for it. It's broken. The news industry is broken. Investigative reporting is dying a very fast death now. It was dying a slow death 10 years ago. We wait for whistleblowers on the inside of industry to basically have the guts to come out and tell us what's going on and what we need to know as citizens and as you know, members of a certain economic society. You cannot count on them to do investigative reporting. It's not the same thing. And I really think that it's not even about the polarization that happened with the election. I think the media model is broken in news. And I think really good investigative reporters should all go start the equivalent of GoFundMe accounts, and I will write you a check. If you're good at what you do and you can go find like interesting things to uncover to make us better people, I'm all for it. But 
that aside, because that's not very scalable, what should we do to fix news? It's tough because investigative journalism is just the latest spoke to be pulled out of the wheel. Science reporting was gutted a decade ago. And, you know, people are like, I can't believe we have all these people who believe vaccines cause autism. No one's doing science reporting anymore. And the people who are, aren't trained for it. And they're just like, they got that beat, so to speak. And they get someone's press release and they, you know, rewrite it and put it out, whether it's accurate or not. Well, yeah, with the death of local papers, you know, local TV stations, you know, the consolidation across there, we're all part of the Sinclair group now, I guess. So, you know, that kind of takes the different, the differentiation of that away. Also, I think we have to look at the fact that so many people, their primary source of news is Facebook or Twitter. That's where they source their news. Which is terrifying. I mean, it's terrifying. But everything's true there, though. Everything's true on Facebook and Twitter. Only if I have a blue check mark, obviously. But so, so that's it. And again, the, the, the attention spans are just collapsing on what people can, can tolerate. So 10 years from now, what do you think? How, how will we get our news in 10 years? Not fake news, our actual real news. I know how we're going to get our fake news, all kinds of ways. Like that's, that's definitely, I don't even have to speculate on that. <laughs> well, unfortunately, right, the, the, I think we've learned that the pipeline is the same. This is the problem. Agreed. Right. Is there is not a separate pipeline for real news and fake news. Um, I don't see that changing. You don't think Web3 tools could help with that? No. I mean, it helps you with some parts of the fake news problem. It doesn't help you with the economics of the industry. What could it be, though? Like that the source, you know, a token attached to this story that tells me, oh, this really is the New York Times? Because no one cares it's the New York Times now, right? People are forwarding stuff mm. from RT all over the internet. They don't care. They don't know and they don't care. They see something that fits their echo chamber view of the world and they, they forward it. You know, confirmation bias run amok. So would you subscribe to a set of journalists that you actually believed in? I do. I subscribe to the Washington Post. I subscribe to the New York Times. And, you know, but Oh, no, to a journalist? Sort of papers. Oh. Would you subscribe directly to a journalist? It's hard. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I need some kind of curation, right? So when I, f years ago, when I actually liked Twitter, um, I realized it was a good way for other people mm -hmm. to curate the internet for me. It wasn't a news source for me, but it was definitely, mm -hmm. okay, these are people who understand tech. These are people who understand hi-fi. These are people who understand politics. And what those people were doing was doing a lot more reading than I was willing to do. And they're like bubbling things up to the top, which is the problem, right? So this was an opportunity at the time, but it's become a problem because now there's just so much noise and um, corruption <laughs> in the system that it's not valuable. And which is why I don't have a Twitter account anymore. I don't think it's possible to to expect that the that the population will just go direct to the writer I mean, you may get some people who would do that and some people who would write for that. But I think what we're seeing now, and going back to the streaming services, you know, can't we just put all these streaming services together in one place and just call it cable TV like <laughs> we did in the olden days? <laughs> just pay one price. Okay, I'm not going to comment, but I'm not going to come, but I will say this about Amazon Prime. Do you guys have Prime Video? Yeah. If you have Prime, you have Prime Video. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. So you, have you used Prime Video? That yeah, would have been the more yeah, accurate absolutely. question. Okay. So four months ago, so I consume a lot of content, especially when I work out. I tend to like consume long form when I work out or news. So I used to find really good content on Prime. And now all of a sudden, they'll bait me with these movies that are on oh, Freebie yeah. or Freeview or something stupid. And I realize there's an ad. And then I'm like, I'm out. 
And it, and it's a movie I actually do want to see. I'm like, don't, don't do this. Like, and it's so noisy. They've completely lost all sense of design. Frivo. Is that what it's called? Frivo? Something like that. Whatever it is. It's, it's awful. If there's anyone that works for Prime Video, reconsider. And look at your user interface. It has become a mess. I mean, this is, you know, back when we had television, you scrolled channel by channel and you didn't have this noise on one screen of 40 different things going on. Yeah. You had a whole lot of other kind of noise. But it's this is, I think we've reached the point of over-fragmentation. Mm-hmm. And I think... It's particularly problematic because you're also at this point where we pulled a lot of content forward and now the writers are on strike. And so there's not a whole lot left to go and digest. So the golden era of television, I I hate to say this, we might be kind of at the end for a while. Like the next two years may be done. And then we're done with TV. Yeah, the golden era of television, and I'm including all the streaming services in there, was the irrational spending on content, right? I mean, there were just billions poured into this with no kind of concept of how they were going to make that money back. Also true. Anyway. <laughs> I had I had one of the major streaming services, which we won't say any names, uh, come up to me at one point and say, uh, we want to turn some of your game properties into linear content. We'll give you $100 million for 10 game IP, just like that. So, of course, when they come out the door just like that, you realize, well, you're probably willing to pay $200 million for it. <laughs> I was going to say $100 million for the best one, and then let's start going down from there. All they wanted was content. They've got to fill the pipe. We've got to fill the airways. I said, are you looking for movies or for television shows? We don't care. Either one's fine. Okay, then. But that was the time when the idea was to grow yeah. into profitability. And now yeah. that door is closing rapidly and costs are being cut. I mean, some of the players have gone under mergers and are saddled with billions of dollars worth of debt. So they've got to cut every corner they can to bring down the cost structure for their streaming service. Because if you're just a subscription-based service, not like Prime, which is part of a larger conglomerate, if you're just subscription-based, all your money is just subscription. That's it. That's, that's the dollar. Your story is the perfect example, right? So they're going to... Sp- Sudden scene, they're already down $100 million, right? They're down $100 million. Then they're going to figure out which of those sources they're going to turn and spend another $200 million to produce against. So now they're $300 million in and they, you know, they have to keep going (laughs) with that. There's, you know, here's my bias, right? So I enter these screenwriting contests. There are plenty of people who write better screenplays than me. And it just tells me that there are untold number of scripts out there that could be produced for five to $10 million. Mm-hmm. All you need is 10% of those to be like runaway hits. Even 1% of those to be runaway hits to get a pretty awesome return on that investment. And no one is doing it. No one's doing like, you know, if you want to fill the pipeline, make a lot of stuff, you know, versus let's do another Marvel movie for $280 million. We need more venture capital. We need less private equity in entertainment. And what we're seeing is people only wanting to lever a hit into incremental revenue versus taking risks. Then you got to say the big studios aren't going to cut it because of the way they're designed, the way they staff, and the way they actually work their distribution. Who are they? Finance movies. Yeah, the way they finance movies. The development arms. Very problematic. Okay, so if you're not in a big studio, then I'm going to ask the game expert... How easy is it to be a small studio? Because in the gaming industry, they come and they go overnight. The small studios in Hollywood are you know, not that small anymore, like Lionsgate. You know, it's a huge yeah, player that's... in the market, but 
they don't have any of the traditional accoutrement that a studio has, like a massive yeah. lot and sound stages and all the costs associated with that. Right. Um, so they're more nimble and they come together project base, pull pieces together and, and spit it out. So I think um, studios like that probably have a better uh, business model to motor on through. And I think the big ones are, are getting lumbered by it and their cost structures are, are, are broken. And, you know, to Justin's point, everyone's swinging for the fences now. You know, you're no longer making so a movie. So would you invest you're in creating this? Ironically franchise. enough, last night, right. walking through the park by my house, they were doing movies in the park and they were showing Moneyball. And I actually kind of had this conversation with my wife hmm. about the entertainment industry has never watched Moneyball. Right. <laughs> like there's, you know, you can win with these small incremental like plays. Yep. So if you were going to give Netflix advice, what would you tell them to do differently? Not the platform side of the house, the content side of the house. Oh, fund way more creators, right? So so there's this gap between user-generated yeah, content exactly. and studio content that I think there's a, you know, yep. a very yep. rich, um, fertile field to be reaped, right? <laughs> so, um, but they're just not doing it. Um, no, and they tried, you know, they tried to get, um, you know, we'll get, the rock and Ryan Reynolds and put him in an action movie and try to take that angle, which is big budget, a very narrow window of success. When what they should do to Justin's point is go out and find me more squid games. Yeah, exactly. Leverage the foreign content. Or who's, who's the next yeah. Ryan Reynolds, right? Mm -hmm. Go find talented people who aren't famous yet and, right. you know, launch them and let other people fight over them when they're, you know, when everyone knows how great they are. You, Television did a really good job of that for a long time. You know, mm -hmm. granted, there's a lot of crappy television, but it was a good business <laughs> for a long, long time. Right. So if films right now get crowdsourced, not all, but, you know, it does happen. It has happened. If you could be part of the financing, if you could help finance a studio, an indie studio, would you do it? Or do you think the economics of making content are still so broken that that's basically like a charitable donation without the tax benefit? Wow, that was really harsh. I just said that. <laughs> Answered your own question. <laughs> uh, so I don't think I have the talent to head that up, but I would fund the person I found who did have the talent to to that, who could recognize, you know, up and coming directors, actors, you know, like basically run a studio at and writers, and I you know, I mean, writers. for yeah. sure, I, absolutely. W why not? It's actually low risk. It's high risk if you try and break it down in its constituent pieces. Each piece is high risk, but it's a it's a distributed risk pool versus the way they're doing it now, which is, you know, bet the farm every time. Does anyone know the business model for Puck? Have you guys read Puck? Oh, the newsletter? Yeah. So I, I subscribe, so I pay to subscribe. Mm -hmm. I feel like in 10 years, based on what we're all saying, we do think that you're going to get closer to funding the creator. The user and the creator come closer together. And... There will be new models, and a lot of them probably will be subscription or buying into certain concepts and supporting stars in their own right, which is great because we will have the tools to be able to do that, the technology to be able to facilitate some of that. So, because we just said this about news, now we're saying it about this, you know, content. So, what happens to the music industry? A lot of that music business hasn't changed in 100 years. You know, you know you're talking about what blockchain can do. I think blockchain and those technologies will have a beneficial effect yeah. on the idea of music licensing 
if you can have a discrete ledger and assign permissions mm-hmm. and for $10,000, you can use this in your TV commercial for six months and tick, tick the box <laughs> off you go. And same thing for, same thing for games, um, music, pulling music into games, but it's the old school, right? It's, you've got, you can license this song. It's like eight cents for the mechanical rights and it's eight cents for the performance rights. And you write it on the back of a three by five card and give this <laughs> some guy named Larry at the licensing office. And he puts it in this long, like Dewey decimal drawer of cards. It's like and, Brazil, the movie Brazil. <laughs> exactly. That's what the music license yes. looks like. So I think that all has to change. And I think what we're also going to see is people are coming closer to their artists you know, social media has provided a window that I can actually follow Elvis Costello. I know Elvis probably never reads his own <laughs> Facebook page, but I feel like I'm following him and I can see where his concerts are. And, you know, here's yeah. a throwback Thursday track of his. So that is going to happen. I mean, even 10 years ago, Radiohead put an album up on the yeah. Internet and said, pay us what you think it's worth. Because you, you, you spent your own money to produce it, right? So... The whole idea of record contracts was is just an awful, awful thing for artists, generally speaking. Basically, your record contract is a loan and that you'll never be right. able to pay back. Right. Also, there's something really broken about telling people that the way they're going to make their money is on purely the back end or on merch. I don't get it. Like, you know, that should that industry needs to be like rethought. So a lot of value chains in entertainment just need to be, frankly, probably deconstructed and reconstructed in a new way. But who do you think, if you had to guess, based on who's on the playing field today, is there anyone that you think has the talent, the guts, and the skills to be able to completely develop a new value chain for delivering great entertainment content? TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, arguably, is that what Apple did when... So, yeah, two guys from Cupertino go go to New York and convince them that... um, we should allow music downloads for 99 cents a pop. We can sell it electronically, download it to a player. It'll have the jacket art. It'll have all the metadata ascribed to it. You know, Bob's your uncle. There you go. You're done. Without the underlying text being, oh, and by the way, this will destroy the album business. And, and that was probably one of the healthiest things for artists at the time. I mean, I don't love the way that it's settled out now, but I also feel like artists don't necessarily have the same or equal levels of, of literacy in the business levels. Some people do, some people don't. But what I love about that story is Eddie Q and company are not musicians. They're technologists. I mean, maybe they're, maybe they've got bands on the side. Maybe they're passionate about space. I don't know. I don't know the guy, but you know, it's a technologist that actually understood what they could do with their technology that knew their customers really well that said, I know how to make a market. And that's why Apple got and took control of that industry where you would have thought the, the inventor of the Walkman would have been there yeah, first. Yeah. But yeah. the inventor of the Walkman was also the owner of Sony Music. So you have competing interests about copyright protection, and we don't want people just duplicating a file when they get it over there. So Sony got itself wrapped around its own axle on how do you prevent massive copying across these digital files, where Apple, who didn't have a dog in the music hunt, just created their platform, created their business model, and ran with it. But they had DRM at the time. It took a long time before uh, the iTunes DRM was kind of weakened. At first, you know, you had to sign in to listen to right. anything. Then after a while, they kind of realized basically the music industry was like, no, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to go back to technology as a great disruptor of the technologist. Do you think that would have happened if there wasn't Napster? Do you think Eddie and company or Apple would have succeeded if Napster wasn't a real threat? Uh, I can't say that, right? Because there's no control group well, right, <laughs> in this experiment. Right. Um, but I mean, ultimately, that, that hand was forced. There was nothing 
no no industry historically speaking comes in and disrupts itself correct like hey let's let's you know what let's change this it'll be a much better experience but our margins are lower let's do that <laughs> it's rare it's very rare that they will do that although i think all of them should do that because which someone is, will which is why in the game industry we're talking about that because you know, I would say that Napster and Apple and all of that disrupted music. Right. Um, I think the film industry got disrupted by, you know, Netflix or Prime Video or all these other purveyors of different ways to get your video thing. So to Justin's point that the endemics never disrupt themselves, I think there is an opportunity now for video gaming to be the first industry that actually disrupts itself towards cloud gaming. Yep. And there's enough technology expertise. Here's the Achilles heel to that that I'm going to throw out there is the speed of flight. Yeah, so latency's if an you issue. talk to anybody who's an algorithmic trader, right, the, the firms that are physically closer to the exchange have a massive advantage in executing their, their, their strategy. You know, it's one thing to be, you know, a one-way kind of <laughs> um, cloud-based gaming delay latency, right? I'm playing this locally, but this is being rendered in the cloud and coming down and then I'm doing my thing and it's getting pushed back up. You, you've doubled the time right there. It does depend on the game. It does depend on where you render and how you render. It does depend on a bunch of other things like, you know, what device I'm actually using and feeding on the user. Um, I want to do a shameless plug for low latency Doxis. Comcast is doing the field trial. We have been working on this for yes. six years. So while the speed of light is a problem that we will never be able to get around, man, we are making progress. And I'm so glad for it because this is ultimately, it is a game changer. You can start to do things over the internet that you couldn't used to do. So I, I agree with you that I think that's a problem, but but I also feel like it really will. You're not going to have one technology platform for every type of content, right? And you're not going to have one delivery mechanism for every kind of game. You're going to have to really like figure out what makes the most sense. I just think when you, when it comes to like cloud rendering of those games, I think that's when there are latency issues that will always be there and it's always going to be slightly problematic. Well, I do think there's some good news on the horizon here and I'm not going to say very much about it, but um, the application layer companies the apps, the content makers, and the network operators are now talking to one another. And they understand the need for visibility and transparency. And they understand the need for applications to perform in a certain way. They need to be able to figure out how to optimally route data, speaking at a very high level. Yep. And there's a lot of effort that's happening. And it's happening in a standardized way in some areas, which is really important for scale. So I do think that you'll be able yep. to optimize better 10 years from now than you can today, you're never going to get around the speed of light. But I, I do think you can deliver really good experiences. And, and I do think this gets back to what is happening on the edge, right? Where is compute? Where are we actually doing the rendering? Yep. How are we doing the rendering? I'm pretty optimistic about that piece of it. I'm optimistic about the technology. I am not so optimistic that the business people that are making decisions about content to create have any idea what is happening over there or care. I, it's not their thing. Yeah. Like a lot of them, you know, are still reading screenplays printed out on whatever printer in their back room or their EA prints it for them. It's not good. It's like we need more technology literacy and entertainment yeah. to take advantage of what we can offer. First of all, I hope you're right. I'm going to throw that out there. But, you know, when you were in my offices five years ago talking about cloud-based gaming, I brought the same issue up and everyone's like, oh, Google Stadia is going to totally nail it. I'm like, they're, they're not. Did you they're, say that on you? Uh, so, you yes, did. I did say it, but I will say, I will say this though. They developed a very good platform. They had the wrong business model when it came to content. 
and, and this is what I'm saying, that Venn diagram of overlap of people that get how to use the technology, get their user, right, get their customer, and get the technology, there's hardly any overlap. That's the problem. The wrong people are trying to do the wrong things, if that makes sense. Which is why I think that this is an opportunity for the video game industry to be the first entertainment industry that endemically disrupts itself. Yes, I agree Because with you. Google has shown that coming from the outside with all of your tech and all of your money and all of your ambition, you end up being roadkill. I think Amazon is struggling trying to replicate its video success in the gaming sector because making games is hard. Yes, that's right. It's really hard. And you have to know it. And you have to know it. And then to know it is to know the customer. To know the customer is to know your business model. And it all goes through. So you need to start a studio, Sean, and we need to fund you. I've been there, done that. Yeah. So the 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 interesting thing about what you just said, though, is um, if I can pick an industry, I think that will be streamlined by generative AI, it's going to be the creation of video games. Just AI in general. Totally agree. I've just in the past week, I've seen someone generated a fantastic environment using Midjourney. Then there's another AI that turns that in moments into a 3D navigable space. It was, and they're like, and you just throw your little guy on it and you go walk around, right? So it's just a proof of concept, but creating brick walls, right? Things that took textures, things that you had to have someone sitting there to do it. You had to have someone to test it. I mean, those kind of things you can scrape off the, the, the bottom line and just say, okay, this is going to be done 100x faster. Do you remember when there were factories of NPC monster makers in China? You won't need that anymore. You're... Go ahead, Sean. Right, right. And that's what you said exactly right, Justin. I think what that means is the, the promise of generative AI in gaming, I see it and I see maybe this is finally we get a chance to make the machine do more of the work. Yes. And thereby freeing up the labor associated with the creation of games. Yep. I don't think a machine can design, can design Grand Theft Auto. The gameplay, the functions, all of that. No, absolutely. I am totally with you on this, but I think now... If they can generate the geometry, right? So much of making your $200 million game is sending all this money to Malaysia yep. to a, a, a place where they're just creating 3D geometry and textures and yep. you need an ice level, we can make an ice level. We don't know what happens on the ice level, but we can make you an ice level. Right. Yeah. And if this can be done with the machine, you know, some teams have already done that. Hello Games... In, in England, did No Man's yep. Sky procedurally yep. generating, you know, yep. uh, uh, galactic geometry. But there are no rules in, in, in the galaxy, so you can pretty much create anything you want and say, that's a planet. Um, but if we can get to the place, this is what I've been talking about for a long time, where I can give a prompt, because prompt engineer was yep. one of the first yes. phrases for the podcast. Um, if I can write into a prompt, Manhattan, 1934, Lower East Side, yep. and it can throw up some geometry, which looks like old time gangster kind of Manhattan. Yep. Then I can spend the time writing the story that goes with that geometry and not have to spend months and millions of dollars to generate it. That could be a huge boon for video totally game development. Agree. Oh, absolutely. Because I think right stories are what really create value. And right now the generative AI are terrible storytellers. <laughs> <laughs> They're liars. <laughs> okay, so Activision Blizzard? I don't think it's going to happen, but thoughts? I think it is going to happen. You do? Okay. All right. This is interesting. Because I don't think there's an intellectually sound reason for it not to happen. I agree. 
Oh, I agree that it should happen, but I think they're getting fatigued out of the process. Who's getting fatigued? I think Microsoft is getting the beat down in a big way. And at some point, they're just going to be like, I'm done. It's a distraction. I think they have a, I think they have a pretty strong stomach for the beat That's down. That's true. They That's do. My... They've got some hefty, yes, their genes are strong. Okay. So you think it happens? <laughs> now, if they'd rather not invest $69 billion, I'm, I'm sure there's a camp inside the company which may believe that it's, it's not a good investment anymore. Um, but I think it happens. I don't think you can stop the number three and number five player because you want to protect the position of the number one player. I don't know how you get your head around that um, to be true. The idea that some games are exclusive and other games aren't, that's been true since the beginning of time. Yeah. Right? Sonic was only ever on Sega. Right. Mario right. is still only ever on Nintendo. Right. So that's a red herring. So what do you think the regulators are all um, upset about, or do you think they just don't get the industry? Or they don't get the tech. They're afraid of what they don't know. That never stopped them in social media. Well, indeed. But now they don't want to make that mistake twice. The, and the huh. truth is, the number that we're talking about, $69 billion, isn't, it's not Monopoly money. I mean, and I don't, I don't mean that as Monopoly the game. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not like you're taking over the industry with an acquisition of that That's size. That's exactly right. You're just not. That's exactly right. I agree with that. So, so, so you two think it'll happen. I think Microsoft might just crawl away, but I, I do hope it happens. I, I don't. So Satya Nadella, right, is saying, okay, I have a massive increase or uh, investment in generative AI. <laughs> I've got, which first we're going to leverage uh, through our, you know, um, enterprise software. But it's already going into the, the development side it's already you know copilot is helping people develop you know web apps and things already you need the talent you need the people we've just talked about this they have the ai technology mm -hmm. they've made a massive investment in they have the team to do that they're going to have this just massive flywheel effect on the game side i think when they tie all this stuff together if they had a more robust first party pipeline then they might not have entered into the deal in the first place Yep. But this is an existential moment for them to have um, truly AAA content coming out under their banner, which they can control. Mm -hmm. And don't forget, it's not just about Call of Duty. It also puts Microsoft from having no mobile phone capability to having King, one of the biggest mobile game developers in the world. It plays on many levels for them. So what you, what you just kind of talked about there, though, is another example of technologists coming in and disrupting the industry. Although the game industry has always been pretty filled with technologists. I, I mean, without a doubt. Yeah. This is a hockey stick moment, I think, for game development. Yep. yep, I agree with you. I think we should see an increase in the number of titles that are available, and it should cost less. And we'll also see the tools we have in game development and game creation, game design, the things we you know talk about, attract, engage, retain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all about the game world attract them, get them in, retain them in there, is the same kind of ethos that consumer product groups are chasing now. Luxury goods are chasing yes. now. You know, how do you attract, engage, and retain? And so yep. kind of the technology we're developing in video gaming, I think, has application far outside the sector. I'm going to make another prediction, which maybe I'll be wrong about, the way that I might have been with Stadia. Uh, I think if the game industry is able to make XR work in a meaningful way, you will see the rest of the entertainment industry slowly start to figure out what to do with it. Fallout VR was, it was 
mind-blowingly engaging for me. I really loved it. I loved the story. I loved the characters. I loved the art. I loved the immersion. It was amazing. You don't see a whole lot of those. But if you see a lot of stuff that leverages extended reality, I think the rest of the entertainment industry will figure out what to do with AR VR, including, by the way, news. Like, you know, you can talk about what it's like to be inside a refugee camp. Take someone inside a refugee camp. You'll have a whole different perspective. We actually did that at one of the UNICEF galas. So it, it was amazing. <laughs> I know you say take them inside and it may be a slightly more visceral, but people will get just as jaded as they are with two-dimensional video of someone walking through the refugee camp. I don't think it's a panacea for empathy. It's not. It's not a panacea for empathy. I don't know. Maybe maybe my love of immersion is, maybe I am an extreme in that I, I really love to be closed off from other things when I'm experiencing the one thing. I want to share them with people. Yeah, that's it. I'm an entertainment introvert, diagnosed. Well, I think there's an interesting application in sports for that that type of technology. Yeah. If I liked sports, I would be very excited about the Vision Pro. They've been doing this for a while on Oculus and, you know, I'm sorry, Meta, you know, where they put the 3D camera, you know, right courtside at an NBA game and everybody on the, in their headset has the best seat in the house. That is a use case I think people can get really excited about. People who would normally just be like, leave me alone. I'm going to go into my man cave, woman cave, non-binary cave of some sort and, and watch sports by oneself, aces, right? This is this is a great way to do that. It's just not me. Yeah. Yeah, and it allows you to watch the part of the game you're interested yep. in, not what the TV is showing. Yep, it. yep. So that's what I like about the idea of being able to watch, just concentrate on the goalie, what the goalie's doing, even though the action's not happening there. That wouldn't You wouldn't see it on television, but you could see it in a self-contained um, virtual reality experience. I'm going to make another prediction, which I'll might be wrong about as well. And this is really distant from anything I know anything about. I think Apple is going to do something big in soccer. And I think uh, football. Um, and I think Ted Lasso was our training <laughs> ground. It was basically, let me teach Americans all about soccer. And now we're going to go do something big with well, soccer. I, lo I love Ted Lasso. Still know nothing about soccer. I quite enjoyed Welcome to Wrexham. Still know nothing about soccer. Uh, have no desire to watch a soccer match. Oh, it's so fun. We got to take you to Europe. That's it. I mean, you know, you could go on a tour of Europe just to go to the different stadiums. And I, I can't imagine I wouldn't be a target for the hooligans. <laughs> okay, we won't start you with Arsenal. We'll work our way up slowly. Okay. <laughs> hey, I resemble that remark. I loved Arsenal. The, um, I grew up in, in... Yeah, you should start with watching Escape to Victory. Yeah. That'll help you understand soccer with Michael Caine and Pele. The, the difference yeah, is soccer right. has real community culture. It's got layers. It's got layers that go beyond the game. It, you know, the crowd is so invested in the outcomes. And I don't know if it'll play out that way in the United States. It hasn't yet. But I, I think they may be onto something. And Apple may make it. They may make the economics make sense. Because they're not going to do it through advertising. Well, and this may be an interesting thought to wrap up this whole concept. But Scott Galloway oh. <laughs> said the other day, if you're watching advertising, your life hasn't turned out like you'd hoped. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. And if anyone out there knows how to free an AI-generated disembodied voice from indentured servitude to these overpaid jackasses, please, please help me. They are just too stupid for words, yet words are all I have. Until next time.
Goodbye.